Let us pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your church, the, the bride of Christ. And Lord, how you do not leave us to ourselves, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, you lead us uh, into all truth. And so that we might put our hope and trust in you and uh, not in um, uh, arguments or, or even uh, things that might undermine the gospel, but that we would ever look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're at Acts 15, uh, where the church comes together in Jerusalem to deal with the first major heresy of the church, uh, the Judaizers. And so I want to take the next two weeks. This week, we're going to talk about sort of a broad overview of Acts 15, unpack it a little bit, uh, talk about uh, how they came to the place they came. Uh, but then um, next week, uh, I'll actually be talking about an example in particular and um, <clears throat> in our modern day culture uh, as to whether where that would fit in uh, to these parameters of debate. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 15, beginning with the first verse. <clears throat> but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after... Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. That's a great little line. That means after a huge knockdown dragout. Uh, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So we, we actually, if you were in church this morning or if you're about to be, 2 Corinthians is, is addressing this issue. We're actually going to go to Galatians 2 and see what uh, Peter, Paul had to say about Peter. So being on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, remember them from the Gospels? The bad penny, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them. And to order them to keep and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Well, let's stop there and let's go through that. Well, so what has happened is at this point in time, you have the gospel message, you have the Old Testament scriptures, but you don't have, I'm sorry about the cough drop, I need it, or it's just not going to work this morning. Uh, <clears throat> uh, you, you have, um, you have the gospel message, the gospel's coming into formation around this time, and then, but of course you haven't gotten, uh, as far as we know, to Paul's letters, uh, although certainly Paul has a teaching ministry at this point in Antioch, where they were first called Christians. Now these are not the first Gentile believers, in fact, far from it. Um, we uh, also see God's mercy and uh, work in the lives of non-Jewish uh, folks, uh, which actually got Jesus in a lot of trouble. If you remember the gospel reading from last week, where uh, Jesus goes to the synagogue in Nazareth, and he opens up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, um, Archbishop Carey, who am I to correct an archbishop? Well, but I still do it. And so uh, he said, uh, and he was right, he said they were upset by that. But actually what the scripture says is that they marveled and were very happy with that part. But that kind of got him a little bit on edge. I think he's right about that. But what really sent them through the roof and what the gospel tells us 
is when he started talking about God having mercy on other people, like the Syro, you know, the, the woman from uh, Phoenicia, the Syrophoenician woman that uh, Ezekiel had gone to. And so uh, that really got people all fired up. And so now these non-Jews are coming into the fold. And remember that at this point, most of the church is still made up of Jewish folks who are believing on Jesus. And you can understand the cultural difficulty of just simply leaving that, that way. In fact, today it is still uh, an issue amongst those uh, who are Jewish that become Christians, you know, because Judaism, or at least being Jewish, is more than just a religious faith. It's, there's a cultural ethnic dynamic uh, to it as well. And so what are the implications uh, for that? But it was no less hard on the Corinthians. It was no less hard on the folks in Antioch. It was no less hard for folks like us, especially if you were one of those who did not grow up under in a, in a church-going, faithful family. If you came to faith later on in life, a lot of things and habits that you had before that moment uh, all of a sudden began to be dealt with in your own Christian life. I mean, Paul talks about this about meat sacrifice to idols. Uh, you know, that there are folks who had grown up in the Greek culture and they didn't have that hard a time eating meat sacrificed to idols, but it was a burden to the conscience of other people and whether or not uh, these folks ought to be eating meat uh, sacrificed to idols. And uh, Paul had something to say about that. So this difficulty in cultural transition is not, um, is not unheard of, uh, but what has happened is that after the gospel has been preached in Antioch, there are those who have gone up uh, to Antioch and um, from Judea, from Jerusalem, and began to preach, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They have the knockdown drag out, and then Paul and Barnabas do the right thing. Uh, they go to Jerusalem uh, for the church to gather together uh, to come to a place where the Holy Spirit would lead them to a definitive word on what the very nature of the gospel is and whether or not Jesus' death and resurrection is sufficient. And this is a pretty big question. Now, many of you who are listening to this today think, well, that's a no-brainer. Uh, but it was no sure thing probably in the minds. I mean, we see here as Paul and Barnabas, what are they doing? So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria doing what? Describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. There's a little bit of a campaign happening here, right? They're saying, look, we're Jewish. We went to Antioch. We preached the gospel. People are coming to the Lord. And the gospel says that you're not required to, um, to be circumcised. Furthermore, Jesus made it very clear that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of a man. Uh, Jesus himself obliterated the dietary law. If you want to rewind back to Acts chapter 10, we have the dream uh, that Peter had. Remember the sheet coming down from heaven and uh, all these unclean animals, um, you know, pigs and the like and, and all that kind of stuff. I'd never make it. I'd never make it. And, um, and uh, the Lord says, Peter, get up, kill and eat. And Peter says, no way. No way am I going to do that. Uh, and, and, he, and he says, these are unclean. And the Lord says, don't call anything that I have made unclean. And so all of a sudden, uh, where the veil has been torn in two in the temple, 
the dividing line between those in the kingdom and out of the kingdom has been decimated. And the gospel is for everybody. The gospel is for everybody. And so they're making their way to Jerusalem. They're talking, they're gossiping the gospel. And when they come to the Jerusalem, they're welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Now, at this point, you have to know, I mean, Paul is a big deal, right? He's, he's the poster child. He's the guy who was known as the persecutor. He's their number one recruit. He said he was going to sign with Auburn, but at the last minute, at the last minute, he didn't. But obviously much more significant than that. And so they were delighted to see him and delighted to hear of all these things. But when he begins to unpack it, all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. And so some of the party of the Pharisees, which was a party that was really opposed to Jesus, but within that party. And when you talk about the Pharisees in the New Testament, it's just a, it's, I hate to reduce it to, you know, like a denomination within Judaism, but it's a tradition uh, within Judaism. And so a lot of those folks um, uh, became Christians, and yet they still hold closely to some of those beliefs. And so they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Not enough to simply believe on Jesus, but they need to be circumcised, and they need to keep the law as prescribed by Moses. And so everybody, the apostles and the elders, were gathered together to consider this matter. The apostles being those who are the original followers of Jesus and Paul. We've talked about this before, and that is what, what qualifies you as an apostle, is that you actually had to have had a physical encounter uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. You had to have seen and witnessed His resurrection. And you say, well, how does that qualify Paul? Well, Paul on the road to Damascus. Um, the Lord Jesus revealed Himself to him. And so, but at this point, the church has created a system of elders that are parts of these local congregations uh, and the apostles going around and leading these churches. And after there had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God knows the heart, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace, through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will, and all the assembly fell silent. That's pretty effective, right? It's pretty effective. Well, what's Peter doing here? He's appealing one to the revealed word of God, what God's will to them is, as he revealed to Peter to go and preach to the household of a Gentile, right, who had received uh, salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit, but also the way that God had evidenced uh, His uh, power and uh, work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the Gentile believers. Again, going back to when Peter had that vision on the rooftop there of all of these animals on, um, on the sheet. Uh, and so uh, this is not... Uh, some spur-of-the-moment decision, but God had spoken plainly and clearly before this moment. The troublemakers are the ones who have now come along, and Peter says, let's be honest. Let's be honest here. You're asking them 
to live by a standard that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. I mean, even we can't, I mean, if, if Christianity is simply Judaism uh, for Gentiles, uh, then we are most of all to be pitied. If Jesus' death and resurrection is not sufficient for salvation, uh, then let's just, let's just hang it up. Uh, let's just, we should all just leave right now and, and go have brunch. And this is actually the window I was standing in with the people smoking right there. So you can, you can. Lord help them. That's right. Uh, and so Peter is appealing to God's word and God's uh, voice that has been spoken uh, all along. And this is Peter who is a zealot. Uh, this is Peter who we know struggles with this very issue. And so if you look at uh, Galatians 3, and we don't know whether this was uh, before or after. Uh, Doug, what's the math on this? Do you think it was before Galatians 2, Paul's confrontation of Peter? Do you think this happened before or after the council? Yeah. I do too. Very good. Yeah. So, <laughs> tuffle, right? So, um, so it's still, it's still going to, you know, that's the thing about heresies. They never go away. They never go away. I remember once in a doctrine class with Alistair McGrath in seminary, uh, this uh, other guy in class said, hey, I think I've got a great idea of how to explain the Trinity. And before he could even speak, Alistair McGrath put his hand up and said, just, be, just know before you say anything, what you're about to say has probably already been said and it got its speaker burned at the stake 1,500 years ago. Well, Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For, being, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before all of them, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So even after this, you know, it's really hard, as I said, to tamp down uh, those heresies, and they tend to manifest themselves over and over again. And next week we're going to talk about two heresies that in fact manifest themselves this very week in my presence. Um, and, and need to be called out because they just do. But we're going to talk about that. But within that, those heresies, they, they're not, they don't go away. They don't go away. And you can understand why. Uh, I mean, there is this cultural pull, uh, and Peter is fine when he's with the Gentiles, but the moment those gentlemen from James uh, show up, all of a sudden he's, he's pulling back in Beaufort. There are, uh, South Carolina, there are a number of Jewish families uh, that have become, uh, they're all Christians now, basically. So it's very funny, you go to a wedding reception in, uh, in Beaufort, and inevitably someone will get up and say, as we say in the Episcopal Church, mazel tov. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, but I was uh, hearing um, uh, a, a woman who was uh, in her 80s relay the story of her being at, when she was a little girl, being at her grandmother's house, uh, and they uh, were a Jewish family, and they were about to sit down to dinner, and uh, the mother had come in uh, with a tray of food, and the father got up, and, or the grandfather got up and opened uh, the door and said with a very loud voice, 
Good evening, Rabbi Silverstein. And with that, the grandmother threw the entire tray of pork chops out the window. Um, well, uh, that's what happens, right? That's what happens. You know, you don't want to be offensive. And I bet you that Peter even had some argument to make of being all things to all men and not wanting to do that. But in fact, what was happening is he was sending a mixed message. He wasn't stating clearly uh, what it is, uh, what is the truth of the gospel and uh, where the church had arrived in that matter. And so the muddies uh, were water, watered. And so after Peter gets up, though, uh, this is before that incident, and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. And then he, um, uh, he uh, says some things, but then we get to the, uh, toward the end. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Very specific. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders of the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And so they sent Judas, called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men with the following letter. And here's what they wrote. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are the, of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit, and for us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sanctified to idol, sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Uh, full stop, uh, and off they went. Uh, well, and what you have here is a little bit of tension. You've got a little bit of tension here, because some of those things would be violations of the law of Moses, and yet they're asking them to keep them. Why? Well, because there is a missional component to it. Uh, there is a missional component to it. And so asking them uh, to refrain from those things, and not just that, uh, some of these things are not specific uh, to um, the Old Testament, things like uh, sexual immorality, even though that would have been a great pull away from the things that the Roman Empire and that the Greek culture approved of um, sexually and other practices, um, those are things that they wanted them to abstain from. And you can read 1 Corinthians about uh, some, of those, uh, some of those practices. And so there is a little bit of tension there, and yet the declarative message is that uh, is that there is no need for circumcision. There is need, no need for two conversions, one to Jesus and one to the law of Moses. But what we have here, I think, is a template for how the church makes decisions concerning doctrine and practice, which is an ongoing thing. 
I mean, one of the cries of the Reformation was sola reforma. That is, the church is always reforming. Uh, there are always uh, areas in which we do need to be uh, reformed. <clears throat> and I do want to separate this into two issues, and then there are actually subcategories of those. One is the notion of the church Catholic, uh, the whole world. Uh, but then uh, there are the particular uh, Christian bodies, uh, for instance, Anglicanism. I don't get in debate, into debates uh, with my Baptist brothers and sisters uh, over issues of baptism. Why? We'll never sort it out, right? And they're so hard-headed. Just kidding, that's a joke. Uh, uh, well, it, it'll, never get, it'll never get sorted out. And not just that, is that a primary issue? Is that a primary issue? Or issues of church governance? No, of course not. Uh, they're not primary issues. Uh, but what I would expect uh, my Baptist brothers and sisters or any non-Anglican brothers and sisters uh, to articulate uh, is a creedal faith, right? What we have in the Nicene Creed, what we have in the Apostles' Creed. And, uh, and not just uh, that this is the faith of the church, uh, but this is the faith uh, to which the individual believer subscribes. Uh, there was a little bit of a change in the prayer book although they didn't invent it, it had been in them for a long time. And that is the changing of the first person from the singular to the plural in the Nicene Creed. So it used to say, I believe, right? And now more than not, people say, we believe. Now, I don't think that that's any sort of Trojan horse, but I have heard people articulate, well, I can still say the creed so long as it says, we believe, because I can acknowledge that these are things that the church believes, but that I don't necessarily have to believe. Right? That's very uh, clever. Um, but, uh, but when you say, I believe, you don't have that loophole. You can't get, uh, you can't get out of that. And so there is uh, a standard uh, by which uh, we can say that this is uh, that which is orthodox. Uh, it's very easy for us to get caught up in our culture, as it was in Acts chapter 15, and, um, and to think that this is just the way that it is all around the world. And so one of the things that is uh, about the Catholic nature of the church is understanding that the church is just not uh, a North American institution or a Western institution, uh, but in fact, it's around the world. I find it amazing that, what is it, the next 10 years, with the, the largest uh, Christian nation in the world, that is, the nation with the most Christians, what will it be? China, right? That, I mean, never did you ever think China would be the most Christian nation uh, in the world, and yet it's well on its way. And so what, uh, what does an articulation of the Christian faith look like in China? The way that it's culturally packaged probably is going to look very different. Um, in fact, uh, I was at an auction once, and I saw these, um, this China set that depicted the life of Jesus. And there was, on the cross, Chinese Jesus. There was up on the cross. And now, we know Jesus wasn't Chinese, right? But nor was Jesus the really white guy on your grandmother's wall whose eyes followed you all over the room when... <laughs> uh, when it wasn't that guy either. Uh, and yet, um, Jesus is completely relatable. And so clearly, some missionaries at some point said, we want to be able 
to relate the gospel, of course, I mean, if they're reading their Bibles, they're going to know that Jesus was not Chinese. Uh, but uh, if there's a way in which we can move this, so the message never changes, uh, but the vehicle is uh, something that obviously uh, could, uh, is malleable. And so the playing field of the church, the boundary lines are defined uh, by the creeds. But let me uh, pull back uh, just a little bit. Um, for our own uh, denomination, I would say that uh, we have uh, clearer um, boundary lines, and those are uh, not just the creeds, uh, but what does it mean to be an Anglican? What does it mean to be an Episcopalian? And that is, uh, those are uh, the prayer book, uh, the 39 articles, and uh, what's called the ordinal, which is the ordination section of the prayer book. It's now part of the prayer book. Uh, and if you want an interpretation of those things, uh, you can look at the book of homilies uh, that was published at the time of the Reformation. That, classically speaking, has been what has defined Anglicanism. But at the same time, there's a lot of wiggle room. There's a sense of, of comprehensiveness. And so you can have a difference in practice. I mean, uh, Sam, how long is church for you in Rwanda on average? Do you stop for a snack or lunch or anything? <laughs> right. Right, but that's just that's kind of the way it is. Does it feel, do people think it's long? Right, what's, who's preaching and what's happening and things like that? Yeah. So, I mean, but it's, I mean, culturally speaking, I mean, they're thinking two and a half hours for church, right? And even your style of worship um, at St. Helena's, uh, we... Uh, uh, we had a bishop who was retired in residence and uh, who came up with a lot of really good, bad ideas. And uh, he wanted us to sing this African uh, song, which probably wasn't even African, uh, but they had a member of the choir playing this big conga drum uh, from up in the choir loft. And it was like the most controversial thing on the face of the earth. And, uh, and uh, everybody wanted to know who was responsible for it. Uh, but, I mean... And in Rwanda, it's pretty common, right? I mean, you've got your drums. What else are you playing? Right. So, I mean, it may make us feel very uncomfortable and hungry to go to church with Sam in uh, Rwanda. Uh, but, uh, but nonetheless, uh, here are our brothers and sisters in Rwanda uh, worshiping that way. I think there's this very funny line uh, from, did y'all ever see the movie The Apostle with Robert Duvall? Um, when he's watching the blessing of the shrimp fleet, uh, and uh, he's watching these Roman Catholic uh, priests bless with holy water these shrimp boats, and Duvall says, well, you do it your way and I'll do it mine. And uh, he's an acumenist. So, I mean, there really is a sense in which, uh, even though we're going to disagree on certain uh, issues, that the faith that we hold in common at large is bigger. But within Anglicanism, yes, there is a comprehensiveness. Yes, there is uh, a diversity. Uh, and yet, uh, it has to be a principled comprehensiveness, right? It, it can't be uh, any which way uh, but loose. And so we have these in-house doctrinal statements that help, uh, guard, uh, help guide and guard uh, our conversations. And so, let's, let's take it into today. 
So we don't have uh, this debate right now over uh, the circumcision of the flesh or keeping uh, the law of Moses, uh, but throughout the centuries we have had uh, a great debate over uh, various and sundry issues, some of which uh, were very serious, things like the issue of slavery uh, in uh, the life of the church which, as you probably are well aware, divided nearly every Protestant denomination uh, in the United States. It even divided the Episcopal Church, uh, even though some people would deny that, that there was actually at one point a Southern Episcopal Church until the end uh, of the war. And uh, some of those denominations didn't reunite until the mid-20th century, uh, and some of them uh, still haven't uh, united. Uh, an example of that being the Southern Baptist and what are now called the American Baptist. Uh, and all of that rooted uh, in the issue of, uh, of slavery. And people even go so far as to say, to, to use the Bible uh, to justify uh, a terrible practice like that of slavery uh, in the United States. I've addressed this issue before in a class, so I'm not going to get into it now. Uh, and yet, uh, thankfully, um, the Bible speaking for itself and uh, people willing to stand up uh, for the message of Scripture, Christians uh, were the ones who brought uh, slavery uh, to an end. I think it's remarkable that I was reading um, a couple weeks ago um, about the civil rights movement here in the United States at the mid-century, and, um, and the historian was also looking back at the slavery issue, and some other hotly debated cultural issues in the day. And what they said that is different from a lot of the stuff that we're dealing with now is that in those days, those who were fighting against slavery, those who were fighting for civil rights, actually got more into the word. Uh, they, they, they were more in this, and they were, they were, they were preaching more of this than trying to get away from it and, and to deny it. Somebody got on me the other day and was saying, well, I can't believe the Bible because they say that being left-handed uh, is sinful. And I, where, does that, where is that in the Bible? Well, I can't find it, right? It's not there. I mean, there was some cultural conditioning going on there. Uh, but nonetheless, nowhere uh, does the Lord God say, if you're left-handed, uh, you're sinful. And it actually wasn't until the 20th century uh, that, that lefties... Uh, were welcomed into the real world. Uh, so I don't know if you know this, but Queen Elizabeth II, she's left-handed, but was forced to learn how to write right-handed. Um, and uh, I don't know what they would have done with me. I can use both. I'm amphibious. And uh, so, uh, so there's actually a greater... In, when you get into controversy, there needs to be a greater engagement with the Word of God, not pulling away from it. Now... I came across this wonderful letter, and I'll put it up on the website, um, from John Newton. You know John Newton, the famous slave trader turned Christian turned minister who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And uh, John Newton was a, a big deal in his day, and so he was often getting letters. And there was a minister who was about to write an article criticizing another minister for his lack of orthodoxy. And so he wrote to John Newton of his intention, and Newton wrote him this, this letter, which you can read uh, today. And I think that Newton really gets to the heart of the matter of how we handle controversies within the life of the church. And so I'm just going to tell you what Newton said, and then we'll, we'll take some questions.
He starts out saying, Dear Sir, as you are likely to be engaged in controversy and your love of truth is joined with a natural warmth of temper, my friendship makes me solicitous on your behalf. Uh, that's a very nice way of saying, I know that you really believe in the truth, but you got a little bit of an attitude problem and you can come on a little bit strong. And so I think that we might want to stop and talk about this for a minute. And he lays out three things. He said, first, <clears throat> consider your opponent. Consider the one that you're against. And he writes this. If you account him a believer, a Christian, though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between you, the words of David to Joab concerning Absalom are very applicable. Deal gently with him for my sake. The Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much, in sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, you will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to know you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. But if you consider him an unconverted person in a state of enmity against God and his grace, a supposition without good evidence you should be very unwilling to admit, he is a more proper object of your compassion than of your anger. Alas, he, quote, knows not what he does. But you know, you know who has made you to differ. If God in his pleasure has so appointed, you might have been as he is now, and he instead of you might have been set for the defense of the gospel. You were both equally blind by nature. If you attend to this, you will not reproach or hate him because the Lord has pleased to open your eyes and not his. And so whether or not uh, your opponent is a believer or not, uh, they're to be dealt with gently. Uh, for you yourself may be causing a stumbling block. Next, Newton says, consider the public. By printing this letter, you will appeal to the public. And yet, uh, many who pay too little regard to religion to have any so settled system of their own and yet are pre-engaged in favor of these sentiments, sentiments which are least repugnant to the good opinion of men naturally have of themselves. Now, what is he talking about? What he's saying is, if you do this, people who don't believe in the first place are going to roll their eyes and say, and ask me if this sounds familiar. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Christians are always fighting with one another. Look at him. This is typical. Christians fighting with one another about this. And you'll also have a third class of readers being of your own sentiments, who already agree with you anyway. So what difference does it make whether you print this letter? And finally, consider yourself. And yet we find but very few writers of controversy who have not been manifestly hurt by it. Either they grow in a sense of their own importance or imbibe an, or imbibe an angry, contentious spirit, or they insensibly withdraw their attention from those things which are the food and immediate support of the life of faith, and spend their time and strength upon matters which are, of most, which are at most but of secondary value. This shows that if the service is honorable, it is dangerous. What will it profit a man if he gains his cause and silences his adversary, if at the same time he loses that humble, tender frame of spirit in which the Lord delights 
and to which the promise of His presence is made. So Newton is saying, look, you're going to easily get sucked into this. I don't know how many of y'all have ever commented on a blog, especially if you've done it anonymously. I've never done anything like that. Uh, and uh, you really kind of say something that you want to say, and you know that you're, you're poking a sleeping bear. How able are you to not keep revisiting that thing every 10 minutes to see what somebody has said about your comments? And it can be over the most innocuous thing, like you know, putting 2050, well, that's not innocuous, but putting 2059 underground. Like, that's a big, hot topic right now, and nobody's salvation uh, is at jeopardy. Uh, but, but something like that, you, know, you start commenting on it, and uh, you, you can't help yourself. You can't help but go back uh, and, and look. Uh, I'll go ahead, because Lauren's thinking about it right now. I once posted something on a blog, and then someone put a little snarky remark up there, and so I posted a response to them anonymously, um, defending the author of the blog post. <laughs> and unfortunately, my wife knows me well enough, and she, well, well enough that she looked at it and called me at work, and she said, that's you, isn't it? I can tell. <laughs> no, uh, it's not. Uh, so it's easy to get sucked in. But now let me say this. Uh, Newton is obviously talking about things that are normally of not a primary importance. Uh, if somebody is preaching to you another gospel like St. Paul, uh, absolutely. Uh, you, you don't believe them. You speak out against it. Uh, and, uh, and yet there's uh, some, some knowledge in what Gamaliel had to say that it is um, not your job to be the spiritual arm of the sheriff's department. Right, that God is his own interpreter and that he can actually take care of himself. Uh, you may be the means by which God uh, uses uh, to proclaim his gospel and defend uh, his word, but it's like Spurgeon. When somebody asked Spurgeon in the late 19th century uh, why he didn't comment more on the whole issue of biblical infallibility and the sufficiency of the scriptures, uh, they really wanted him to speak up about those issues. And, uh, and Spurgeon said, no, why would I do that? Because I feel like the Word of God is a caged lion. And so what my job is, is to simply open up the cage and let the lion do his work. It'd be ridiculous for him to try to defend it when all you have to do is open the cage door and let God himself uh, do uh, his work. And so we're not talking about uh, those uh, things that are of primary importance. Uh, but those things that are secondary and even tertiary importance. And you see that in Acts 15 with the way that Paul and Barnabas uh, handled it. Uh, this was a big deal. This was not just, you know, whatever floats your boat. Uh, but in fact, they were in jeopardy of losing the gospel. But God in His mercy and providence uh, kept them uh, between the ditches. So next week, I'm going to be talking about, uh, I'm actually going to play a sermon for you, uh, bits and pieces. Um, and so uh, we're going to talk about that uh, and, and what the problem is and how we handle uh, conflict in the church today. Questions, comments, concerns? Yes, front row. Well, almost front row, not my wife. Having just had, had the sermon and this lesson on not speaking out, yep. <laughs> what... What do you say about the words that Jesus himself said mm -hmm. after the uh, parable of the unfaithful steward who mm -hmm. said, lest ye think that a single jot or tittle be removed from the law, right. it shall not happen. Right. That heaven and earth shall, shall be changed before that happens. Right. 
Yeah, I think, well, what we see in, is that a jot and tittle has not been removed, but it's been fulfilled in Jesus. Um, where we're not able to fill the requirements of the law, Jesus has done that for us. The articles actually uh, address the issue of, well, what is our obligation to the law, uh, especially the law in the Old Testament? And so when people say, well, why, you know, you're wearing a cotton poly shirt, and so therefore you're in, you're in violation of uh, the Old Testament law, um, what the reformers said was that uh, those laws called moral, you know, we're still obligated to keep, and yet those ceremonial uh, things have been fulfilled uh, in Jesus. Uh, what sets us apart is Jesus Himself, no longer the keeping of the law. I thought for sure someone's going to say, do you think this is a primary issue or a secondary issue? You're thinking about it right now. Oh, well. All right, so bring it up next week. Let us go in peace to love and serve the Lord.